This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, achievers, self-starters, and high-reachers. Welcome to a new year of Right Minded, our sixth year, which is like, wow, where did the time go? I am Brooke Warner, one half of this show. I'm here with my co-host, as always, Grant Faulkner. Welcome back, Grant. I hope you had a great August, though actually we're recording this in August, so uh, presumably somehow somewhere we got a little bit of respite, but not at this exact moment. Yeah, Brooke, I'm, I'm afraid I, I got only about two hours of respite on August 13th. And <laughs> it was a quality two hours, though, so I'm, I'm ready to go. Um, you know, I'm not complaining, but I, but I think I might write a book on respite just so I can get some respite. There you go. There's one avenue in. And we're kicking off our new season with a topic everyone loves and is interested in, which is agenting, agent advice, what agents think about, how to get an agent, agent agent agents. <laughs> so Grant, uh, I was looking back in our archives and the last agent we had on the show was Nathan Bransford back in 2019 before the pandemic, totally different world. Uh, and that show was all about how to pitch an agent, how to get an agent basically. Uh, and so I went back and listened to it and the advice still stands, a uh, very different world that we live in, but in a lot of ways, traditionally publishing and all that surrounds it remains quite unchanged from a few years ago. So I did not want to do that show all over again. Listeners who missed it can go dig into the archives. Uh, and literally, I'm telling you, his advice is completely up to date, minus some of the Twitter references. Hmm. Well, that's funny, Brooke. And that's making me just wonder, what was he saying about Twitter in 2019? What's changed? I know, right? And well, this is a question we're going to pose to today's guest, Lisa Leshny. Um, but it goes to show how trends rise and fall because he was talking about certain hashtags to follow specifically like following agents on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of agents are still on Twitter, but it's not the community that it was. And so many people have abandoned ship. And, you know, I, I am curious Lisa's take on whether there's like a Instagram or TikTok equivalent because uh, clearly people are there, but the way that Twitter used to like, you know, gather people in the round was kind of exciting. And there was a way to like really talk to agents and other writers in a way that I don't think is being replicated on other platforms. Uh, but you know, as far as Twitter goes now, I am like blissfully not thinking about it. So I don't know. Do you know where the agents are hanging out? <laughs> where are the agents hanging out? <laughs> I'm going to hire a private detective to find out online. But yeah, I actually don't know. Uh, I don't follow a lot of agents on, on social media, but you know, I think Twitter or X, X. actually, I think it's still probably the best place to find agents or, or, or to follow them, I think, because there is some action happening there. And it was the main hub there for a long time. And, and, and right, we're not doing a repeat on the how to land an agent. Uh, instead, we're going to do a, a post pandemic, post George Floyd, post failed Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster look at the publishing industry through the eyes of an agent today. So just so listeners know that. That's perfect because everything is very meta right now, Grant. You may have noticed. Like I saw Barbie this summer and I was like, this, this is what it's all about. It's the meta narrative. Uh, so being our first episode back post Barbie, it all just feels very appropriate. 
Yeah, very finger on the pulse. I like that, and and I have I want to say I loved Barbie every single moment of it, so much that I that I could go off on a wild sidewinder of a tangent and just talk about Barbie right now and my everlasting love of Greta Gerwig, the director. But but I'm going to rein myself in because I know that you and today's guest Lisa Leshney spent time together at the Kauai Writers Conference, and and you. Brooke, you actually do hobnob a lot with agents when you go to these conferences. So you probably get the inside scoop and have your own advice to dole out to authors about agents. So what, what are some of the things you'd offer up? I mean, the biggest takeaway for me is that agents obviously are people just like you and me who happen to have the sometimes enviable, sometimes not enviable role of standing between authors and their dreams. Uh, you know, no matter how wonderful and talented an agent might be, they really are not king or queen makers. Uh, agents can have breakout books and they do super important work. And some of them seem to have a golden touch. That's all true. But most of them are workhorses who are just out there hustling. Uh, that said, they do know how to spot good talent. So they are great readers. They understand what will sell and not just content, but people too, right? So they're looking at the whole package. And I think that authors get too tied up in the idea of their book being like this standalone thing that's going to make or break their chances with agents. And that's just not how agents see it. It's not how the industry sees it. There's much more to what you're selling than just your book, right? And it's why we've talked on previous podcasts about platform, the author platform, visibility in the world, your connections, the specificity of your book project actually matters. Like Lisa does a lot of prescriptive and narrative nonfiction. And that stuff is just easier to wrap your mind around than novels uh, and memoirs are. They're easier to sell. And so I set this context because my advice is like, don't be starstruck by agents. <laughs> Their job is to spot what they can sell and then support authors to get the best deals that they can and then step in when necessary. And so they're managers, really. Uh, and so authors should be thinking about whether or not they're at the level where they need that kind of management because not all of us do, uh, you know, myself included. But Grant, uh, before we bring Lisa on, what is the most valuable asset your agent brings you? Yeah, I, th I think your your guidance to not be starstruck is really important because I was certainly starstruck and intimidated, you know, for years. And actually, until I got to know agents a bit, and I saw that human side. They they really do go through exactly what authors go through in terms of like this whole journey of publication, and they face rejection just like authors do, and they have passion and love in the game. And I, I actually really love my agent Julie Stevenson, and she's at MMQ. And the reason I love her is that she she cares about the work she represents. And I think that that's something crucial when you're thinking about finding an agent is to find someone who cares. And and, she, and she's really a guide for the book uh, and for me as an author and her, her ideas for the book I'm working on right now uh, with her. You know, she's really nourished the book in crucial ways and helped me think more deeply about it. And she's, she's also, going back to what I said earlier, she just helped me see why agents need to feel passionate about what they represent. You know, that's oftentimes the way they reject things is that I, I didn't, I don't, quite love this work. It's a great work, but I don't quite love it. I don't really feel it. I don't feel the passion. And and they need to feel that that almost that same passion that you do for your book because they face this labyrinth of rejection, you know, just as authors do. So they have to have um, some skin or some heart in the game. So with that, I want to I want to learn more about that skin and that heart in the game. So I look forward to hearing more from from Lisa because I always have things to learn from agents.
Welcome back, everyone. I am so happy to be kicking off this new season with guest Lisa Leshny. Lisa has been in the media and entertainment business for 30 plus years. In 1991, she co-founded and served as publisher of the Prague Post, the largest English language newspaper in Central Europe. She later held all kinds of media positions in New York, including working at Accenture's Entertainment and Media Group, Dow Jones, and the Wall Street Journal. Prior to founding the Leshny Agency in 2011, Lisa began her career as a literary agent at LJK Literary. She is most passionate about memoir and narrative nonfiction that elevates social justice topics, women's issues, and underrepresented voices. And Lisa, I believe you're joining us today from upstate New York. Welcome and thank you for being on Right Minded. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm actually joining you from Long Island, but oh, Long Island. Enough. Well, that's upstate New York to me. <laughs> What do I know? It's all good. It's not It's not New York City, so it's all the exactly. same, right? You're outside Manhattan. Exactly. So, Lisa, it's clear that barriers to entry to traditional publishing have been really high for a while now. And, of course, folks want to traditionally publish for all the obvious reasons, for legitimacy, to have someone pay their way, access, future glory. So as an agent, what are you looking for in an author that's different than, say, 10 years ago and have the parameters changed? That is a great question, Brooke. So when I first joined the industry as an agent, it was 2008, which was actually a terrible time uh, in publishing and to start a new career as a literary agent. You know, the, the country was just undergoing a huge recession. Um, financial markets had collapsed. And I think that I actually came in at the beginning of what has been a large transition period in publishing, where I think the days of, you know, huge six-figure advances and, you know, three-hour, you know, liquid lunches between agents and editors, which I heard about but never got to experience, you know, were dwindling. So, you know, what I have faced throughout the past 15 years, you know, is a climate where it has been harder and harder to make deals. I mean, of course, there are exceptions, there are fluctuations and ups and downs, But I think that publishers have much tighter purse strings and the industry has consolidated considerably. There there have been a lot of job cuts and there are less editors acquiring. There are the marketing departments and the publicity departments are a lot smaller than they used to be. So all of this is to say that I think it's very hard for smaller books, quieter books, and maybe what were mid-list books of the past to get published. You know, publishers, of course, are always looking for the next big thing and the big blockbusters. But, you know, the backbone of publishing are titles that, you know, our perennials are going to, you know, stay on the backlist and, you know, be read year after year after year. And it's very hard, I think, if you're an author to make a debut, to break into the industry and to to get your book sold if you don't already have an established platform. So I would say that's a long winded way of saying that I think the most important thing in the industry today that publishers are looking for and that therefore agents are looking for are authors that already have an established platform. 
that's especially true for me because the focus in my you know business at my agency is primarily nonfiction. I would say fiction is different in the sense that platform is is not as important for straight fiction. But in terms of nonfiction, if you do not have established credentials as, say, an expert in an area where you might be writing um, narrative or prescriptive nonfiction or in memoir where you already have a platform and an audience that you know how to reach, then it's going to be very difficult to break in, even if you have the best idea in the world and it's the best written book in the world. It's very hard without that platform. Well, Lisa, you know, like a lot of content creators, Brooke and I are following what's been going on with AI pretty closely. And, you know, we have our takes given where we sit in the industry. I I run a writing platform for authors and Brooke runs a publishing company and both of us write. So I'm curious from your vantage point as an agent, what does the future uh, look like to you where AI is concerned? And what are are some of the things you're either excited about or or things that make you fearful about how AI will invent? inevitably shake up things for us, better or worse? To be honest, I have not been incredibly fearful about AI in in the way that I think um, colleagues of mine who represent screenwriters and TV writers and you know, playwriters and those kinds of content creators. Um, obviously, there's a strike going on for the Writers Guild of America. And I think there there's a lot of concern there about how AI may be taking over jobs. I have, you know, seen a lot of posts and a lot of chatter about the ability of AI to write fiction and generate fiction, which I think is interesting. However, it's you know, from the examples I've seen, I I don't sense a lot of originality there. And I think that as somebody who loves literature and loves to read myself, you know, there's nothing like sitting down with a book that opens my eyes into a whole new world that immerses me in that world, you know, with every fiber of my being. And the rest of the world just, you know, kind of crumbles away when I'm into such a good book. And it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, AI could take that away um, and take away that originality that comes from, you know, a human that, you know, is creating these worlds themselves. So I may be naive. I, I know there are people who feel differently, but I'm personally not very concerned about it. Well, Lisa, I want to turn to other news, publishing news, Uh, the Random House Penguin or Penguin Random House Simon Schuster merger that was not to be uh, happened, obviously. And we had our thoughts on this, but Grant and I are not agents. And so I'm curious your take on what mergers of big houses means for you as an agent and for the authors that you represent um, right now. We're recording in August, but this is going to be launching in September. So by the time this comes out, I think we're going to know who the buyer for Simon & Schuster is. Uh, But with the, you know, understanding where we sit now and that we don't yet know, who would you choose to be the buyer for Simon & Schuster? Um, You know, like if you don't want to say specifically 
<laughs> you know, put your money on it. But like, why a private equity firm versus another publisher and vice versa? I personally would like not to see another large publishing merger because I do think that ultimately it, you know, it results in less choice and less opportunity for, you know, agents in terms of, you know, who we're pitching to and, you know, when it's time to, you know, have an auction when that happens, you know, because then houses will put together a house bid, they won't bid against each other. So obviously you have less competition and less competition isn't good in this situation. I think that, you know, the rumor, the latest rumor is that KKR is going to be acquiring Simon & Schuster. I don't know, you know, what will have actually occurred by the time this podcast airs. But if it does, you know, I guess I would say I'm neutral. I think a private equity firm like KKR has deep pockets and, you know, anybody who's willing to put more money into publishing, in my opinion, is a good thing. I think what tends to happen with the mergers is that we're seeing a lot of consolidation, which is resulting in job cuts, less editors, um, you know, less publicity people, less marketers, et cetera. So the idea that somebody would come into it with deeper pockets that may invest, you know, I, I think that that is probably a, a better choice from the standpoint of the consumer at this point. Well, Lisa, I think it's interesting how agents can take on a kind of demigod status in the eyes of writers sometimes. And, and of course, in the end, you are just people doing a job that happens to open doors to some authors and give access to some authors. But you're also in the game of pitching work yourself and facing the same sort of, you know, anxiety and rejection. So I want to put you at ground level and ask you about your very human day. Like, What's the best part about what you do versus the hardest part of what you do? Thank you for that question, Grant. I love the way you put that. And we are far from demigods. I could, uh, you know, certainly attest to that. The best part of my job is when I can help make someone's dream come true. And when I feel that I'm taking on a project that is important work that I believe passionately in, that I'm helping put out into the world and potentially and hopefully change hearts and minds. That is the best part of my job. One of my latest you know, book deals is a book called Indian School Road, which is being written by two co-authors, Patty Talahangva and Heather Cabot. Patty is a past president of the Native American Journalists Association, a longtime PBS producer, um, and... Uh, a longtime NPR contributor with Indian Country Today. Heather Cabot is a very established um, journalist and author. And together, the two of them are investigating Indian boarding schools, starting with the Phoenix Indian School, where Patty, her mother, and her grandparents were all students. She's from the Hopi tribe. And together with Heather, who's an investigative journalist, they are, you know, uncovering really a never before told story. So that kind of book to me is something that 
you know, is untold history that, you know, I feel so great about helping make that happen and getting a book from a Native American author to have a book that, um, you know, gets a six figure advance and that hopefully will be a really big book, I think is, you know, vitally important. The worst part of my day and the hardest part for me is, you know, rejection. Rejection, you know, on behalf of my clients, when I do passionately believe in a project and have a hard time selling it, you know, as hard as rejection is for the author, you know, they may not believe this, but it's horribly difficult for me. I mean, my heart breaks and cracks for them when, you know, because because I wouldn't take this on. I mean, I wouldn't sign an author and take on a project if I didn't believe in it and if I didn't believe I can sell it. And, you know, when you put so much work into it, sometimes hundreds of hours from my point of view, from the agent's point of view, and I know that authors toil for years, you know, and then to have it rejected and it's tough, you know, sometimes the rejection is as simple as it's not right for my list, or I already acquired a book that had something to do with Native Americans, so I can't take on another one, as if there's only one story. You know, I already did a book about uh, divorce, so I'm not going to take on another book about divorce. I'm picking like, you know, just a stupid topic. But the point being that, you know, it's stupid. It's all stupid to say there can't be more than one book in this area. There are so many reasons given that aren't reasons. And I know how authors will look at each word and parse it and try and read into it and figure out what did they do wrong? What they, what could they do differently? And the truth of the matter is it, there, there's nothing. I mean, it's really so much of this is up to the individual who's acquiring it. It has to do with what else is on the list. It has to do with timing. It has to do with budget, but all that rejection is so so hard. So it's very tough. It's great to be the messenger of, of great news, but it's so hard to be the message of bad news. The other part of this that I'd love to mention to your listeners who are authors who may have agents or are looking for agents is I know that it's so tough when you do send something off and you're waiting for a reply. And you know, from the author's point of view, you're probably sitting there saying, well, I don't understand. You know, I sent this email. Why aren't they responding? You know, I sent my proposal or my query letter in, you know, eight weeks ago. They said eight weeks. I haven't heard anything back. And what they don't realize is we're inundated with hundreds, thousands of queries. And what may seem to the individual offer, well, it would just take five minutes for them to look at mine and reply if it's a no. You know, you got to take that in the context of everything else on the agent's plate. And it's, it's hard. I'm also, you know, I'm one person who is trying to do the best job I can. I'm also a mom. I'm also a wife. I'm, you know, also somebody with, you know, my own, um, you know, needs and life and everything that's going on. And I, I want every client to feel like they're my only client, but that's impossible. That's what I strive for. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm only human. And, you know, I hate that I can't give everybody an answer immediately and give them the answer they want to hear. I wish I could. Then I would be a demigod. <laughs> then you truly would be. Yeah. Well, thanks for all of that insight. And this question actually sort of builds upon it because you're talking about like 
some of the difficulties of being an agent, I totally relate to that. I mean, it's just, there's, there's a lot on our plates. Uh, and, and for agents specifically, you only make money if you sell your author's books. But I think most authors have this fantasy of agents living these super glamorous lives in New York City, taking clients to lunch, living off the spoils of their royalties. I mean, some of the things that you were saying was like before your time, right? Right. Um, and, and I've hung out with you a bit and we have actually rubbed up against a bit of glamour, you know, but it's actually way more elbow grease than glitz. And so I'm sharing all this in part because I feel like authors need to stop seeing agents as the meal ticket to their dreams and instead really treat them as strategic business partners. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and how can authors help agents help them? So I love the idea of authors and agents, you know, treating this as a business partnership. And I think that is a great way to look at this. It's true. I don't get paid. I mean, I always say to my authors, I don't get paid unless you get paid. So our interests are completely strategically aligned. The issue I find with the structure of only being paid on a commission is that, unfortunately, there's really, and I've, I've learned this over 15 years now doing this job, there is literally no correlation between the amount of time and work and elbow grease that I put into a project and help shape a project, help edit a project, help create and, you know, finalize a proposal, prepare, you know, to pitch it, pitch it, sell it. There's no correlation between the hours I put into that and then, you know, the actual advance and royalties that come out of it. I could spend hundreds of hours on something that I think is the best project I've ever seen and have a, you know, and, and have a very difficult time selling it and then sell it for very little money, um, relatively speaking. On the other hand, I could have a project that, you know, comes in almost perfect that I have to put very, you know, little work, additional work into and that I have a relatively easy time selling that gets a high six-figure advance. Unfortunately, those are very few and far between, and it's the former that is what happens most often. And I struggle with this because it's not accepted in the agenting world to you know, charge by the hour for our work or charge for editing services, and we don't. So, so we do work solely on commission. But as publishing has consolidated and the role of the editor at publishing houses has become much more about acquiring and not really about editing, they really expect that a manuscript, by the time they see it, by the time an agent pitches it to them, it's really got to be pretty perfect. It's got to be pretty much able to turn around and be ready to go to copy, edit, and publish. So the work of editing, most of that comes down to the agent. And we do a lot of that work and we're not getting paid for that. So, so that is something I struggle with and I wonder about, and, you know, I've thought more and more about, am I being fair to myself? And is this a good business model, you know, as a business person and as an agent to operate strictly on a commission? It's something that I, you know, I turn around in my head and think about, and I've certainly had clients, especially business people 
who've said to me, well, can I just pay you? For the most part, they're clients who I wouldn't take on. I wouldn't take on as an agent because I don't think that I could sell their project to a traditional publishing house. And I think that they actually may be better suited to self-publish. Um, and they'll say, well, can I pay you to help me? And my answer is no, because I'm strictly serving as an agent. But, you know, I, I do wonder about that. And I look at some of my agent friends who've transitioned into publishing consulting um, or editors who are working, you know, just as consultants. And I think that financially speaking, they're probably doing better than I am. However, I love what I do. And it seems like every time I think about possibly some kind of transition, a project comes along or I'm introduced to, you know, a to an author, and I get excited all over again. Well, Lisa, I'm going to talk about something you might not be excited about, so brace yourself. I'm ready. <laughs> it's always been easy to trash Twitter, and it's especially easy to do that of, of late, of course. But, you know, Twitter was... X. You're right. Yes, X. Are we, do, we, do we call it Twitter? That's a good question. Not sure, but I... I think out of rebellion to its its present day transformation, I'm going to call it Twitter because that's once what I affectionately knew it as. Great. And, you know, in this whole thing, you know, we it's easy to forget that at one time it was a great place to follow agents and get in on things like pitch wars and other interactive publishing experiences that actually was meaningful and helped people. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of curious, like Brooke and I were talking about this, like we're not really sure if New York agents are still engaging with Twitter like they once were. And if they aren't, like, is there someplace else we should tell writers to go? So I am not engaging on Twitter or X. I'm pretty, I've pretty much been turned off by all the social media platforms. And I don't think I've posted anything on any of them in about six months. Um, just kind of a general sense of disgust. I keep, you know, I do keep a presence there, but, you know, I probably haven't been super active on my Leshny agency Twitter in years. Um, I think there's been a lot of migration over to Instagram and TikTok and BookTok. And it was just really hard for me to get on the bandwagon. I just felt like it's, it's too much. It's too much to try and do it all. And to be honest, I'm not actively seeking clients. I get, you know, more queries than I can handle. And people find me. People find me no matter what. So I'm sorry to say that for me personally, I am not seeing social media as a great place to interact. Um, I just think there's been a lot of poison on there lately. And um, I think it's quite sad what's happened with Twitter. And I don't know what the future is. It's It's been um, pretty crazy to watch somebody pay that much money for one of the best brands in the world and then just destroy all the brand value. You're, you're kind of confirming what Grant and I said at the end of our last season, you know, which is like the heyday of social media and like what Twitter really was for publishing, which was pretty exciting, you know, maybe yeah. eight, 10 years ago. It was amazing. Yeah. Which is, which is sad for emerging authors. It is sad because it, it was a great way to build platform. And I think it probably still is for certain authors. Um, I think it is a great way for authors to interact with their fans and their readers. 
I mean, Colleen Hoover and TikTok and, you know, her entire, you know, universe of fans is something to behold. And I think that fandom is pretty exciting when it happens and when people are that excited about an author or about a series or about a kind of work or about a genre. So I do think that's still happening in places and that's great, but I don't know where it's going to migrate next. I have no idea. And as an agent, I just think it would be really hard for me to try and get on whatever the new bandwagon is. So I'm just going to, you know, you know, whatever. I'm a boomer, I guess. I mean, I'm called a boomer. I'm Gen <laughs> X solidly, but I think you're a Gen X. No, no, I'm Gen X. But, you know, my kids <laughs> like to say, you know, call me a, you know, okay, boomer. Cause you know, I still sort of use Facebook. So that's hilarious. Cause Grant was saying the same thing. His, he's a Gen Xer, yeah. but his kids are trying to call him a boomer. Ah, it's sad. Solid Gen X. Yeah, me too. Me too. My kids know where it hurts though, where to poke. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, it's insane, yeah. right? I'm not that old. Yeah. So Lisa, thank you for taking on all these ambitious questions. Cause we're kind of asking you to take out your crystal ball and like, give us some thoughts on the industry. And we've just been feeling a lot of turmoil in the industry. And so my final question here is just about the trends that you've been seeing in terms of noticeable changes, you know, and if you were to take out your crystal ball, what is like, a prediction you might make obviously totally okay if it turns to if it turns out wrong I won't come knocking on your door. Well look, I think, you know, publishing follows trends and, you know, I I've seen this the entire time I've worked in publishing where, you know, everyone's looking for the next big thing and then once it happens, you know, everybody wants to do whatever that is, whether they're, you know, vampire books or shapeshifters or you know, new adult, um, you know, the, the focus towards publishing underrepresented voices, I think has been fantastic. Uh, you know, and that has been great, but it's not great when it's to the exclusion of lots of other voices. So, you know, again, we're, we're seeing these trends and what I worry about too, is we've had, you know, a focus now on take on publishing underrepresented voices, but I worry that all of a sudden, now publishers are going to say, okay, we did that. We filled our quota, you know, on to the next. And that shouldn't happen either. I mean, everybody, everybody deserves a place at the table. So I, I have no idea what the next big thing is, but I can rest assured there will be many trends. And when they happen, whoever, you know, can pile on quickly will probably get a great book deal. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really been interesting to hear your take on everything. Um, thank you guys for having me. I enjoyed the questions and I am a an excited listener for all the future podcasts. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Well, Grant, we already confessed that we're recording this episode in August when I'm supposed to be vacationing and you're supposed to be working on your book proposal. So this trend is probably going to be a bit out of date by the time it airs. However, we have been closely tracking the purchase of Simon & Schuster and we've covered it a couple of times. And since we asked Lisa her thoughts about it, I do feel that listeners uh, who might not follow publishing news as closely as we do should probably uh, know where things stand. So go. 
Yeah, so there are two interested buyers, and probably by the time this episode airs, we'll know who the winning bid is going to, but that doesn't mean it's over, since right after Penguin Random House made their bid last year, the case went to the Justice Department. But that that said, one buyer is News Corps, who owns uh, Harper Columns, and the other is KKR, which is one of the world's largest private equity firms. So, Brooke, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, and why do you think that Harper Collins is in, in in the running here? If the Department of Justice shut down Penguin Random House, since both Harper Collins and Penguin Random House are big buy publishers. Yeah, I mean, I've read a bit about it, so I know it's because Harper Collins is just way smaller than Penguin Random House. Uh, I don't have the exact stats, but I think that even if Harper were to buy Simon and Schuster, they would still have less market share than a single Penguin Random House. So in that sense, it's about size. Uh, but I have to say that if it comes down to like a Harper versus KKR, I am rooting for Harper in this sale. Uh, but I did read an article that a lot of industry people want it to be KKR because they uh, want to keep the big five intact and not create a situation in which we have the big four. Uh, but for me personally, my issue with KKR is just the fact of them being one of these private equity firms that I've read so much about. KKR is Kohlberg, Kravitz, Roberts. You know, it's just interesting. Go look at their Wikipedia page and just behold what these people own. It is a crazy lot of stuff. It includes things like Nabisco, Safeway, Toys R Us, which of course they killed. Um, And the thing about these private equity firms is that they do these buyouts, you know, so they take over companies uh, a lot of times because they want the assets, like the property or whatever. Um, That was the case with Toys R Us. And so they buy the companies and then they milk them for their assets and then they let them die. I'm sure that's not going to happen with Simon & Schuster uh, because of the cultural impact and what Simon & Schuster is. And Simon & Schuster is doing well financially, but it just doesn't change my cynicism toward private equity firms. And I just feel like they're killing the American dream by amassing great wealth to the detriment of society. They're not exactly going to be concerned about publishing books written from the heart, (laughs) put it that way. Uh, They're very much about the, um, you know, expenses and and the numbers, really. It's, It's a very cold business, as I understand it. And like you say, yeah, they're just they're just squeezing out whatever assets they can get. So, yeah, I, I think I would hope that Harper Collins is the better buyer here or I'd root for them as well. Though, you know, it seems in this case that it'll be in KKKR's best interest to keep Simon and Sushi diving. Who knows? But Paula Kance, as I say, as a publisher, I guess it's doing really well. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely performing the best of the big five in recent years. I I know that they won't kill it. So it's not that it's more just a general feeling that I have, like that they just want to diversify their portfolio. And it's like a good thing to own. And I for me, that's just sort of a sad way to think about a legacy publishing house. Totally. Yeah, totally. It's all capitalism now. Yeah, capitalism. Well, listeners, we we acknowledge that our trends are sometimes a bummer and and, and hope that it's (laughs) counterbalanced by some of our more on-brand inspirational episodes and trends. But Brooke and I also subscribe to the belief that staying real is also inspirational, right, Brooke? A hundred percent, yes. And we do promise inspiration, but not Pollyanna. Uh, So we will probably keep these sort of trends coming. It's true, Grant, like for whatever reason, a lot of times the trends are just not super positive. But hey, you know what is positive? It's a new year, a new season, a new era, maybe. We'll see. So thank you, everyone. We're very happy to be back. Thank you for listening. And until next week. 